Welcome to Resilient Communities, a RAND podcast series providing insights on cross-cutting issues in the field of community resilience. In this podcast, we hear from Heather Schwartz, a policy researcher based on RAND's New Orleans office who studies the effects of integrating low- and middle-income families on the school experiences of children from low-income families. Her most recent work asks whether 11 cities' inclusionary zoning policies actually achieve the policy goal for social inclusion. This work is relevant to communities that are interested in retaining lower-income families who might otherwise be priced out of their high-cost housing markets. Heather, what are inclusionary zoning policies, and do they offer low-income households access to low-poverty neighborhoods and schools? Inclusionary zoning policies are a type of land-use policy intended to provide low-income households access to middle- or upper-income communities. About 500 localities in the U.S. have adopted inclusionary zoning policies. The way it works is that inclusionary zoning either encourages or else mandates real estate developers to set aside a portion of the homes that they build to be either rented or sold at below market prices. And in exchange, the jurisdiction usually provides the developer some kind of incentive to offset the developer's financial losses that he or she incurs on the IZ homes. A common example of this is allowing the developer to build more square feet of housing than they otherwise would normally be allowed to do under the zoning code. Since the economics of inclusionary zoning usually only works in places where there's a high demand for market rate housing, it seems like inclusionary zoning would almost by definition succeed in providing low-income persons access to low-poverty places. But the devil is always in the details and the specific features of inclusionary zoning can either enhance or reduce its ability to promote economic inclusion. So we tested whether inclusionary zoning actually does offer low-income families homes in low-poverty places by collecting data from 11 cities or counties with inclusionary zoning programs. And the bottom line is that we found that, yes, overall inclusionary zoning does succeed in providing low-income people access to low-poverty neighborhoods and to low-poverty or high-performing schools. Specifically, the programs primarily serve low-income homeowners rather than low-income renters, and about three-quarters of the about 15,000 inclusionary zoning homes that uh, we examined in our study were located in neighborhoods where less than 10% of the households live in poverty. These homes were also residentially assigned to elementary schools with lower poverty rates than schools within the same jurisdiction where no IZ homes were residentially assigned. And furthermore, the inclusionary zoning homes were also residentially assigned to higher performing schools. How might inclusionary zoning policies contribute to building a resilient community? Access to low poverty places matters because we know that living in neighborhoods with high rates of poverty contributes to stress and to negative peer effects. Those neighborhoods also tend to have less proximity to jobs and to have fewer neighborhood resources for children and adults like libraries and playgrounds. We also know that nationally, low-poverty schools far outperform high-poverty schools. And while the test score gap between white and African-American children has narrowed over the last 50 years, the gap between the lowest and the highest-income children has doubled in the same time. Not living in an affluent neighborhood or attending an affluent public school certainly doesn't guarantee a person's success, 
but it does at least provide greater opportunities for children from low-income families, and it promotes their resilience. What do we still need to learn about economically integrative policies like inclusionary zoning? We need to understand not just whether, but how living in low-poverty places affects families. Is it through the prevailing social norms in those neighborhoods, through changes to a person's social networks, through decreased stress associated with living in a place with less crime and less residential turnover? Furthermore, is there some minimum period of time a family needs to live in a low-poverty neighborhood or attend a low-poverty school to benefit? And we don't expect that all families benefit in identical ways. So does economic integration do more or less for kids or adults in different life stages? Answers to these types of questions would greatly help to refine housing or school policies intended to promote economic inclusion to be more effective or efficient. Thank you for listening to the Resilient Communities podcast series. This series is a product of the Rand Gulf States Policy Institute and is made possible with support from the Charles M. and Mary D. Grant Foundation. For more information about Rand's work on community resilience, please visit rand.org slash topics slash community resilience. Resilient Communities also produces an online newsletter for sharing ideas, research, and strategies to build resilience. For more information, please email communityresilience at rand.org.